This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriona Gold, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Kyla Summers about her new book, When the Smoke Cleared, The 1968 Rebellions and the Unfinished Battle for Civil Rights in the Nation's Capital. Dr. Kyla Summers earned her PhD in history at George Washington University. Her work has been published in the Washington Post, Washington History Journal, and edited collection Demand the Impossible, Essays in History as Activism. She's former editor-in-chief of the History News Network and currently works as digital engagement editor at American Oversight. Her new book, When the Smoke Cleared, has just been released this month, April 2023, with the New Press. It's an important account of the 1968 civil rights rebellions in Washington, D.C., their background and their immediate and continuing implications for both D.C. and the U.S. more broadly. The book is full of fascinating historical detail, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it. So without further ado, welcome to the New Books Network, Kyla. Thanks so much for having me. Great, glad to have you here. So my first question is always the same. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, maybe your academic trajectory, your personal history, whatever you'd like to share with us today? Sure. So I grew up moving around a lot but I came to DC in 2008 as a college freshman, also at the George Washington University, and fell in love with the city. And then at the end of my undergraduate degree, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And so more school sounded like the right option. So I went right into a PhD program. And then while I was in early on in the PhD program, um, Michael Brown was murdered by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And I was really fascinated both by the militarized response to the protests, but also the way that a lot of politicians and even some of the media avoided talking about the issue of police brutality and the solutions that were being proposed by instead criticizing the protesters. And so I knew that there had been rebellions in D.C. in 68. I started poking around a little bit, and I realized that there had not been that much research done on it before, at least academic research. And so I said, I think this is what I should write my dissertation on. And I also loved it because it meant I got to stay in D.C. And instead of flying around the world to go to archives, I rode my bike to the archives. Um, And so then I wrote for a few years, turned it you know, it became my dissertation. I finished that in 2018. Um, 
I got a job. I didn't write for a little bit. I was just kind of enjoying being done with school. And then in 2020, when um, George Floyd was murdered, also by a police officer, there were nationwide protests in the U.S. And once again, D.C.'s got the, I would say, got some of the most international and national attention. Um, And it really felt like what I had written about a few years ago was just so relevant, especially as, again, a lot of times we avoided talking about, you know, the systemic issues at hand because legislators or the media would instead criticize protesters. So that kind of gave me the push I needed to write a book proposal and convert it from a five-chapter dissertation into, I think it's 11 chapters, an 11-chapter book. Um, And then it was, and then it got published. But outside of, you know, that, I yeah, I love, I've been in DC 15 years. I love it very much. And it's, yeah, it's just my home and it's neat to get to write about it. Right. Okay. That's so interesting. So this was your PhD. Yes, it was. It it was, um, yeah, like I said, a five chapter dissertation that it was, and it was definitely like, there was a lot more detail in that. And so one of the reasons that I ended up going with the publisher that I did was that they wanted me to shorten it and others wanted me to make it longer. And I have a full-time job. I'm not in academia anymore. And so the proposal of cutting things out instead of having to go back to the archives or try and make it even more academic was really appealing. (laughs) Oh yeah. I feel we could all relate to that. (laughs) I mean, I'm still writing my PhD and uh, yeah, yeah, the thought of uh, completing it and then making it longer, my God. Well, this is uh, obviously the results are, are worthwhile. Um, it's a fantastic book. For my next question, I'm thinking it would be good if you could tell our listeners a bit about why the 1968 rebellions matter in sort of broader historical context. So we've heard a bit about how you came to be interested in them, but why do they matter? You know, why does understanding the 1968 rebellions matter for, for understanding DC? Why does it matter for understanding US history? Yeah. So, I mean, to really pull back, 1968 is just a watershed year globally. There's Paris in 68. There's um, the Chicago Democratic National Convention in 68. There's Vietnam War protests. There's, it's just, I mean, sort of like 2020 in a lot of ways. It's one of those years that things, that just so many huge crucial events happen and there's kind of this feeling of shifting like the world is shifting change is happening and so it kind of it initially ties back into that a lot of scholars have written about 68 more globally i'll be fully transparent my book is only about dc um it really that was kind of one of the joys of writing it was focusing so specifically on the the local implications. But in 1968, the reason that the rebellions happen is that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there's protests across the country, but the biggest in terms of troop involvement, number of arrests, and property damage are in D.C. So one of the reasons that they matter is that they get both they are the most, you know, the largest, but also it gets the most national and global attention. So it becomes, and it, you know, what happens in DC becomes a political talking point 
Richard Nixon, when he's running for president that year, turns the issue of crime in D.C. to be a central part of his campaign as he's talking about law and order and the need for stronger policing and fewer protections for the accused. So it's if you are someone that has been concerned about crime in the U.S., and then there is an event that leads to 6,000 arrests, all within the backdrop of, you know, building a thousand fires burning in your capital, and, you know, it's getting international press coverage, like, you're going to make a big deal about it and use it as a central talking point as to why, you know, reform needs to happen. So I think the political implications and the political imagery that it creates is really important. But the biggest argument that I'm making in this book is that that's just one part of the legacy. And we've studied so much more the reaction of, you know, white suburbanites who the message of law and order really resonates with, and a lot less about urban Black people who are living close to the damage and what what decisions do they make? How What are the implications of this for them? And what I talk about is they don't, you know, turn away from, they don't give up, they don't, you know, they instead create these plans that say, we're going to rebuild in a way that tries to resolve the central economic and racial inequalities that led to these rebellions in the first place. There's a reason that when a civil rights leader is murdered, that, you know, tens of thousands of people come out to protest. There's something political going on here. And so they create plans that really centered um, equality and Black power and um, economic opportunity in those plans. And I feel like you know, a lot of them don't work out largely because the Nixon administration slashes funding and really makes it difficult to get them done. But it still is important to look and say, what did a majority Black city do in response to this crisis? And how did it envision a different world and a different city in the aftermath? So I think, yeah, both of those those two ends of it make it really important. And I think it's also just important because, you know, we haven't stopped having mass uprisings. It still is a phenomenon. And every time that that phenomenon happens, it's the same playbook where one group of people is saying this is happening because of deep-seated economic and racial inequality. And if we don't tackle this, these are going to keep happening. And then on the other side, you have people saying it's just a bunch of criminals, lock them up, and that's the solution. Right. These are uh, ongoing discourses today, of course. I think it would be really helpful for us to step back even further and talk about how DC came to be. I mean, you talked about how the rebellions in DC were huge. How did DC come to be an important city for Black Americans? And, and how did race relations or the history of racial oppression in the city develop leading up to 1968? I mean, we know that the history of race-based oppression in the US is not one of linear progress, right? I mean, those of us who are somewhat familiar with it, but I think it might be good to give our listeners a sense of that broader, longer context from which these rebellions arose. Yeah. 
So DC is a really unique city. We still to this day do not have voting representation in Congress. Um, I mean, I'm going to go all the way back. DC is created in 1800 as the capital city. They were there was a debate by America's founders as to where the capital city should be, and Southern slaveholding states said we need it to be a, it, we need it to be from the south it needs to be a slave holding place or else it tips the balance too far towards abolitionists so dc is created by the is carved out from the slave holding states of virginia and maryland and slaves enslaved people build um, a lot of the capital city then we're going to fast forward to um, eight, the 1860s when the American Civil War happens. And when the South secedes, the Northern states have all the power in Congress because the people that would have opposed them are gone. And so they um, emancipate D.C. in 62. And they also pass a lot of like kind of use D.C. as an initial because they have control over D.C. as a way to um, pass some of those reforms that they had wanted to happen. So during the Civil War, there are D.C.'s Black population, I think it quadruples, and D.C. become, there's a very large Black population in D.C. to the point that when D.C. men get the vote, D.C. Black men get the right to vote um, right after the Civil War, Black men are almost 50% of, of the electorate. So they um, they have elections and they're passing civil rights reforms. They're electing Black leaders. And it's like they have political power. But a lot of the white populace hate this so much that part of the reason that they it, that they that they end the ability to vote in D.C. So D.C. had they had had a leader that was spending too much money. It was getting into debt. Um, that is a part of it, but it's also the fact that black people had real political power, and they white people in D.C. thought that congressional rule would protect their interests more than democracy. So with the end of Reconstruction, which was the period after the Civil War, they pass something that sets up a new type of government in D.C. that gives everyone in D.C. zero voting rights. White people can't vote, Black people can't vote, and it is entirely appointed rule and congressional rule for almost a hundred years. And so then, you know, but then you do have over the next few decades, like D.C. has the biggest Black population by um, percentage of anywhere in the U.S. It because of the ability to get a, go- a government job, it is um, it's a, a route to the middle class. D.C. also has some of the best schools for Black people in the in the country, and so it becomes the center, uh, the cultural center of Black life in the U.S. And at the same time, there's always a lot of poverty. There's you know. For for all the elite or middle middle class, there's also a lot of people that are living in alley dwellings and working, um, you know, working tough jobs. But then, with the um, so yeah, there's a very large black population there. Fast forwarding to World War II, it keeps growing. 
by 1957, D.C. is more than 50 percent of the population or black people are more than 50 percent of the population in D.C. So it's a majority black city. But while this is happening, D.C. still has never had voting rights. Um, there's just, you know, like there is everywhere across the country, there's few job opportunities um, or especially few opportunities for advancement. The schools are very unequal. Um, you know, there's it's yeah structural race racism. And so during this period from the 50s into the 60s, you see the way that what activists are pushing for shift from, you know, just equal opportunity, especially after they, you know, legal segregation is no longer legal, but it shifts into demands for control and power and the ability to you know, almost self-determination for what happens in their neighborhoods. And this really overlaps with the lack of democracy in D.C. That was long. But the point being, the, an argument that I make is that fear of Black power is always embedded into the governance of D.C. And that's part of what leads up to the rebellions. Right. So anyone wondering why D.C. still does not have statehood, this is where you want to be looking to find out. Yeah, so there are all these moments of hope and progress that get rolled back that we see in this history, and the rebellions are they're a part of that picture. So the rebellions came about in the wake of the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., right? And I wonder if you could say a bit more about what caused them and what the initial local and national response were to them. So in the immediate, as they were ongoing and in the immediate aftermath. Mm -hmm. So Martin Luther King is assassinated. The news breaks first, not that that he had been shot, not that he was dead yet. um, Right when people are commuting home from work and there's this intersection in DC that's 14th street and U street. And it's, central for several reasons. One is that it's a huge bus line hub. And back then, that's how most people commuted to work was on these bus lines. So you might be transferring if you've been coming on Crosstown and and now you need to go uptown, you would likely have a bus transfer there. There's a lot of, you know, shops and takeouts and everything. So this is kind of where you're running errands on your way home from work. The other reason that this is a really important intersection is that it's, um, all of the civil rights organizations have headquarters there. So this um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is the organization that King led, has an office building right at this intersection. And so a lot of people gather either around televisions or radios that are, you know, in shops at this intersection or by the SPLC headquarters to hear news. The crowds grow. Later, the news in about an hour, the news breaks that he is dead. And, you know, you just have growing and growing, growing crowds. Stokely Carmichael, who was, who's credited with coining the term Black Power, he is one of the most famous um, Black leaders in the country at the time. He was living in DC then. And he says, I'm going to go around to ask these shops to close. If um, Robert F. Kennedy died, which ironically he he was killed a few months later. Um, then they would want this is what you know this is what they would do for him. So let's see. So they 
walk, um, they go store to store, the crowd grows, eventually it grows angry. There's scattered instances of window breaking. And then eventually, um, even though Stokely Carmichael and other people tried to stop it, it, you know, it erupts and it's largely able to be contained that night. Um, there's only, I think like a couple hundred arrests, but then the next day is when things, you know, grow to a huge extent. And there's, like I mentioned earlier, like over a thousand fires lit. There's so many stores broken into. Um, I don't, you know, I think this is a much larger phenomenon, right? Like we have, we've had riots after sports teams win championships. There's been, you know, there's lots of reasons that human psychology says that this is a, this is a way of expressing um, grief and anger, or even excitement. So I don't have, you know, it's, but that's initially how it leads to the crowd dynamics that become this mass, um, mass protest. And then um, what happens, I mean, I think, you know, some, there is a, there's a huge discussion afterwards of why, why were why were people out on the streets? Why were they doing this? And you know, a lot of something that I argue in the book is that I do think there's large. It's the general under undercurrent is political, right? There's grief and anger at the death of King. Um, they attack the places that white, you know, the power of white people was most present in their neighborhoods. So they confront the police, which they often viewed as an occupying force. They attack white businesses that were often very exploitative. Um, and they sometimes, and they also like attack commuter highways where white people would come into the majority black city um, on their way to work. But there's, it's, it's, you can't like, it's also very complicated, right? Like there's a lot of people that say, I just wanted to get something for free. Right. And like, but there's also people that say, I wanted to get something for free. And this is my way of like getting back at white power. Um, so it's something that I argue is that there's no one underlying reason. A lot of times people participate for even conflicting reasons. Sometimes they say they participated on different days for different reasons, but it is important to like preserve the political element of it, even if not every participant had that at the top of their mind or even thought that that's why they were participating. Um, in terms of the reaction afterwards, um, it's DC, the city itself, uses this as a moment to say, we need to listen to what people are saying. We need to listen to what they want. They hear, they hold hearings where almost 100 people testify, 1,500 people show up, and they use what people say as the basis of a rebuilding plan that centers community participation, economic empowerment for Black people, and social equality. Um, it's, yeah, that's the most succinct way of saying that. And then at the federal level, um, it becomes a reason, you know, it becomes a rallying cry for law and order. And President Johnson um, caves on some things that he hadn't been willing to do before. He passes a Safe Streets Act, which gives the police more power. Um, and then you see Nixon using this as a central campaign issue, getting elected, and then 
really making DC the place that he experiments and uses it as a laboratory to try and enforce, to get these proposals passed that really um, give the police more power, limit civil liberties, and create some of the basis of, um, you know, the laws that make mass incarceration such a big issue in the U.S. today. Right. Yeah. That kind of interplay between using, well, the 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 local and the national as well, like using DC in that way. I One of the reasons I wanted to read your book was because I researched DC-based bureaucrats and you see these calls for, I see, these calls for security measures that would be national in nature as a response to essentially crime panic about DC you know it's not safe to walk around the city I live in or so so on so forth and it's DC and the streets of DC being used as the evidence for why national security measures might be needed which I thought was really interesting so it's good to have this broader context and I I don't know how much of that carried through I I suppose I'm wondering what changed you know if you'd like to tell us a bit more about what did change in local and national politics in the decades post-rebellion and how are we still feeling the effects today? Yeah so um, in the aftermath DC creates the DC Council, which is also ironically presidentially appointed at the time, um, passes proposals that limit when police officers can fire weapons. Um, They also pass um, legislation that would gave the community more oversight over the police. So those are two things that I talk about. Unfortunately, both of those are not actually enacted because um, of, of pressure um, that like anti-crime posturing pressure. But it is still, I think, really interesting that the first impulse, like one of the first impulses is to, instead of strengthen the police, actually listen to the community and limit the police, even if they're not enacted. Um, in terms of rebuilding, they there's lots of it's it's kind of complicated but there's a, i really focus on a neighborhood called Shaw which is been the the historic center of black life in DC and instead of rebuilding focusing on private developers they create a plan that's focused on community groups especially churches partnering with the DC government to and working with the community to create a plan. So they interview and ask the community what they want. They ask more than 50% of people that live in that neighborhood what they want the neighborhood to look like, which is pretty astounding. And they create a plan that has real community buy-in. It's also, like I mentioned, really neat because it's not based on private development. But they pretty quickly run into some issues, which is funding. Um, you have to have enough money to do these programs, but you also need money because if you are rebuilding and trying to revamp places instead of just tearing everything down, you have to have the ability to relocate people because a lot of this is public housing. Um, and 
they just don't have the units because there's, especially because of a lot of policies that Nixon is putting into action, slashing funding or even banning new public housing building. Um, So that limits it again, but the government still does get, they build a lot of new schools, they build new libraries, they um, build a lot of the things that the community had wanted. Um, And then, but as they're running into these issues with, specifically with housing, um, the city, or I guess the federal government more, um, turns away from the community rebuilding model and says that the reason that we're having these delays is um, community involvement, which I don't think was actually accurate, but this is what they say. And then they they turn towards private development. So in, they instead of working with churches, they give it, they sell it to the highest bidder and thinking that this will speed up redevelopment. But the private developers don't want to re, don't want to build there yet. They see these lots as a long-term investment, and so they lay vacant for a long time. Um, and that's part of the reason that it took so long to rebuild and have rebuild those areas. So that's pretty internal to DC, um, but it still was interesting reforms on the more national level. Like I said, Nixon is elected within the first two weeks of in, of him being in office. He comes up with a anti-crime pl- plan in D.C. A lot of those points become the 1970 cr- D.C. crime bill that's passed in in 1970, as the as the name suggests, and that um, gives the police a lot more power. They're able to do no. Um, no-knock warrants, which is where you can just go into a home without knocking, giving people any warning. Um, this is often really deadly for people because they're not anticipating they'll react, and then the police think that they're a threat. Um, it increases the ability to do wiretap surveillance. It also imposes a lot of mandatory minimum sentences, um, which there's a lot of literature on how that's really harmful, especially for community, disproportionately for communities of color. Um, and that becomes modeled uh, nationwide by a lot of other places. And Nixon also uses DC as, you know, try and say his plan has worked. He sends a police chief on a national talking tour, touting all these reforms. He wrote police officers letters all the time to tell them what a good job they were doing. Anyways, it's a huge huge program, but it doesn't actually reduce crime in D.C. is the irony. And so just to bring things up to today, we're in another moment where crime in D.C. is really being intentionally politicized. There's been hearings on it in Congress recently. Congress actually recently passed, uh, overturned a law in D.C. that was seeking to modernize its criminal code and would have reduced the mandatory minimum sentences. And Biden signed it into law, despite previously supporting D.C. home rule. Um, so the idea that, you know, D.C. crime is important and revo- like requires federal intervention is still really potent today. Um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of things that are, yeah, really remind me of this past going on. Absolutely. It's a very timely book. I mean, maybe maybe it would always have been timely in some ways since these are, these are issues that have been going on for so long. But it really does feel like this is a great moment to be revisiting these histories. 
I'd like to know, I mean, given how these things have carried forward into the present, I'm, I'd like to know whether you're planning to write more on any of this or, you know, what you're working on now in general. I suppose maybe it's too soon to ask what your next book will be about, but I'd love to know. I hope I can write another book. I think, um, like I said, I'm not in academia anymore. So I think if I can find if I can get back in a career that's a little closer to history, maybe that'll make it easier to get back to the archives. But um, I keep writing shorter articles about DC, especially because it just feels like what I've written about before is so resonant right now. Um, It's so easy to politicize DC because we don't have representation and we have this symbolism in the rest of the country that makes it really easy to manipulate and use it to political ends. So I write quite a few op-eds and shorter articles, but I don't know what then if there will be another long-term project, but I hope, I hope there is. I think, um, I think the fifties in DC, this is mostly about the sixties in DC. I think Um, looking at the 50s could be interesting. I think you mentioned a little bit the um, national security state and how that interplays with DC. I think something that I wrote, write some about in the book is um, how much like the state department was interested in like, right. Because when diplomats come to the U S they come to DC most of the time. And there was several really high profile incidents of, like an African diplomat not being a, like not being allowed to eat at a restaurant, um, and that does not look good in the press. Um, that's not good for relationships with other countries. And so I think um, looking at how you know the fear of of how anti-communism overlaps with um, efforts to desegregate DC could be interesting. But that's just one idea that I have. Yeah, I look at the State Department. So that's absolutely something we should talk more about. And I look forward to seeing more of your work in future. In the meantime, it's been wonderful talking with you today. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Kyla. And thank you, everyone else for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Dr. Kyla Summers about her new book, When the Smoke Cleared, the 1968 Rebellions and the Unfinished Battle for Civil Rights in the Nation's Capital, which is published by The New Press in April 2023. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the publisher, or from any ethical retailer. Thanks all for listening, and thanks again, Kyla, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.